0: It's just a few minutes before we get started, so I won't I won't talk about TV for the moment, just out of respect for those who are still trying to find the room. Um, but I just did want to share with you, and I think we can actually just pass these out. Um, yeah, there is, I'm, I'm putting in a, a plug, so to speak, for a book that I think some of you may enjoy. It's called. Miracles and Moments of Grace, Inspiring Stories from Doctors. There are actually a number of people here at the conference who have contributed stories to this. And when I read through them, I found some of them quite moving and inspiring. I know it's on sale. I don't know exactly where. I'm going to save this for the other. other yeah, okay. We're going to send it to you out. Because I have another. <laughs> It's somewhere on sale, I suspect, in the exhibition hall. I'd encourage you to go and just take a look at it, Miracles and Moments of Grace, stories about real people in real field settings and what God, in his mercy and grace, did with them and for them and the people that they were working with. All right, well, I have 8 o'clock by that clock, and I'm going to just use the, the local time, so to speak. Thank you very much for coming. This is a talk on the management of TB medical and public health considerations. My name is Clyde Powell. I serve as a medical officer for the US Agency for International Development. I'm based out of Washington DC. I work in the Bureau for Global Health, so I support tuberculosis programs all over the world. In fact, I flew 15 hours to get here, overnight international flight, etc., to be a part of this Program of which it's really an honor to be, um, again, a speaker this year. My work for USAID supports programming in countries, what I say, A to Z, Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. So I work in Asia, Africa, Latin America, Caribbean, and I support, actually, U.S. taxpayer dollars at work, thanks to the U.S. Congress, We have funding to support the TB control and prevention programs. We work with national TB programs, ministries of public health. And um, I've been doing this for about 14 years for USAID. And I really, I think one of the joys of longevity with one job is the opportunity to see the good work that's being done all over the world. And um, I wish we had more than the time allotted just to share with you some of the success stories some of the different solutions to common problems, et cetera. Um, I also still practice medicine. I'm trained as a child neurologist, so I see patients every week that I'm in the country. And um, I always say I don't want to give up my stethoscope nor my reflex hammer and just keep grounded about patient care. So I really, I think my primary calling is to be a physician. Um, I am delighted that God has also asked me to be a public health specialist And they're not um, mutually exclusive. It's possible to be two people in one one body, a public health advocate, specialist, and also a clinician. During this morning, um, there is a lot of information to cover. I'm glad to answer questions as they come up as points of clarification. We'll try to have time, I hope, at the end to have some more open-ended questions, so just keep that in mind as you formulate what you want to ask. I also recognize that people come to these (coughs) sessions, well, I feel like one of those airline companies that says, thanks for flying with us, (laughs) but I do thank you for coming this morning because I know there are some excellent choices, things that I would love to hear this morning uh, within the session, so I appreciate your willingness to start your, your Friday morning with a, a talk about TV. Also, I realize that people come here with varying levels of experience. There are some people who, you know, are just getting started out, for whom some of the basic information will be useful. And there are other people who have lots of hands-on experience, probably more than I do. And if there are things that I don't know, please speak up and clarify, correct me, etc. I think the idea is for all of us to learn. These are my learning objectives. I'd like to briefly review the basics of TB and its medical management. I also, as a public health specialist, want to talk about some of the global TB situations, the larger context, some of the challenges, and how the World Health Organization. Um, the U.S. government, other host nations, ministries of public health, and people right there in the weeds are working to address this through expansion of something called DOT, the Directly Observed Treatment Short Course Strategy, which is a WHO World Health Organization recommended strategy. We'll touch a little bit on co infection between HIV and TB, a little bit about um, multi drug resistant TB, MDR TB, and engaging all providers. Also because I like to keep this cutting edge to some extent, I will spend the last maybe third of the time here talking about new drugs and diagnostics, especially focusing some, on something called GeneXpert, which is a rapid diagnostic test that has been just um, expanding throughout many countries. And then talk about you know what are the priority settings for using GeneXpert, and its implications for us as healthcare professionals, but also for patients and public health authorities. So hopefully we can cover all that in the time. I think it's always helpful to start off with a little bit of a case. This is a patient that I met in Bangladesh, and um, he was a migrant worker, and he had been battling TB for eight years. He was diagnosed at the age of 20, and he was treated for six months and considered cured. But three years later, he started to have the symptoms he had at the onset. He was having cough and weight loss. And it took... um, So what they did is they put him on higher doses of the same medications for eight months. Um, However, two years later, um, he had symptoms again. So he's had multiple courses of this and treated for four months when someone finally recognized that he had multidrug-resistant TB and so he's in a hospital in uh, Bangladesh. He's had a lot of problems with the second-line drugs that are used, first-line drugs for drug-sensitive TV and second-line drugs for drug-resistant TV. So he's had a lot of problems with the side effects. He's been unable to work, and this is how he makes his living. As a migrant worker, he's likely sending remittances home um, to his family. So just to put in context what we're, we're um, focusing on, When I was doing some work in Liberia about a year and a half ago, I was, again, because I'm a pediatrician and very interested in the issues of child TB, I ran across this child on one of the wards, and you may be able to see that he's fairly thin, he's obviously bedridden. This is a child who had spinal TB, had TB meningitis, and this is one of the complications that we do see. Technically, it should be prevented by the vaccine, BCG, um, but... In this case, it didn't, and not everybody gets that um, old TB vaccine. I also just want to remind you that women bear a high burden of tuberculosis. In fact, in Afghanistan, where I was just very recently, this is a country where upwards of 70% of all the TB cases are in women. Hmm. This is unusual. Um, There are some neighboring districts in Pakistan where this Gender imbalance, so to speak, with TV also happens. The World Health Organization is studying this with funds thanks to the Canadian government. And we're hoping that we can figure out what it is. It, what is it. Is there something within the environment, something behavioral, something genetic? But this is a good thing to, to keep in mind, that sometimes in some countries you may see a gender difference. It's also interesting that there have been uh, groups of OBGYNs in Kabul, who say that TB seems to be the leading cause of infertility among these among Afghan women. So for those of you who are interested in the reproductive health aspects, this is something to keep in mind. TB can, of course, affect any organ of the body. Let's just talk a little bit. Yes, ma'am. couldn't get there because education. they also
1: couldn't because they
0: there are many reasons. I think those are good, good reasons, and those are the ones that are being looked at. Is there some differential in access to care? But we might see that in other sort of cloistered populations. Why does it seem to be so specific in this nation and bordering districts in Pakistan? But those are very good, those are very good possibilities, and I think they'll look at that as one of the risk factors. Anyway, let's look at the global burden of TB. These numbers are just out from the World Health Organization, which launched the official report in mid-October of this year. It's estimated there are upward of 9 million cases of TB in the world, of which a little more than 1 million um, have HIV. It's also thought that there are about 650,000 cases that are multi-drug resistant, But what's really happening? What are the numbers of cases actually diagnosed? Well, there are a little less than six million. So we have a gap of about three million cases around the world that are not being detected based on public health epidemiologic um, estimates. So there's about a third of the cases that are still out there without having been diagnosed and gotten on treatment. And the thing about TB is that we know TB is curable if it's drug-sensitive TB. So that would be good news for those people. Also, um, the number of cases diagnosed for HIV-associated TB are about half. So there's a lot of work to do in terms of counseling and testing of um, TB patients and screening of TB in HIV patients. And then in terms of drug resistance, oh, we have such a long way to go. We've diagnosed only about 9% of all the cases out there, and as some of you may know, drug-resistant TB is a different ball game in terms of the kinds of drugs, the duration of treatment, side effects, and, and other issues. And that's why I want to talk about Gene Expert towards the end. Anyway, if you're just sort of looking at the bigger picture, if you, if you can see on this map that a lot of the cases of TB really are in sub-Saharan Africa, some pockets within Latin, South America, um, but a large number of them are in India, China, the um, Russian Federation, et cetera. And so this color-coded chart gives you a sense of the um, estimated cases per 100,000 population. So for those of you who are working in these countries, you can see that here's something else you can include in your scope of work. The World Health Organization organizes the world uh, um, in terms of geographic reasons, regions. And in their way of organizing this, about two thirds of all the cases are in Asia, Asia Middle East. And about a quarter of them are in Africa, with smaller numbers in Europe and, uh, and the Americas. Mm-hmm. So, why is TB still a problem? I'd like this to be a little interactive. We've gotten perhaps some suggestions, but let me hear from you. Why is, let me tell you. <laughs> TB was described in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the Israelites had tuberculosis. It's described as the fiery consumption. That's, of course, it's not called TB in Deuteronomy. But it's a problem that's been around for thousands of years. And the fact that we can diagnose and treat it, that it has a cure, why are we still struggling with this disease of thousands of years of it old? Why, why do you think, in your experience? Why
1: don't
0: you give us one? Poverty, chronic
1: malnutrition, chronic malnutrition. You know, damp, cold conditions without heat, without proper protection in winter months.
0: Exactly, the stresses Crowded of life, right, population density, crowding within homes. Business, you know. So lots of environmental conditions. Right. I'm just repeating your comment so this can be projected to others and recorded. Um, immigrants to the United States having TB, maybe getting treated, maybe the treatment isn't complete, or you know they feel better, which is common, that people can feel better after a few weeks of treatment and perhaps because of patient education haven't been told they need to continue on their regimen for at least six months. So people stopping their treatment before they're fully uh, treated and cured. Other reasons? Why am I in public health? <laughs> yes?
1: Um small droplet, it, the aerosolization of it, it spreads so easily.
0: Exactly. Anybody can get TB. In fact... Of the some 6 billion people around the world, they say that one-third of the population, the global population, is infected with TB. So that's 2 billion people around the world who are infected. And I'll talk a moment about the difference between infection and disease. But those people are the reservoir for new cases. And why do they have it in the first place? Because we all have something in common. We all inhale and exhale. And so we are all at risk for tuberculosis. Probably within this group, there are a number of people who have positive skin tests, who have been exposed, infected, but don't have active cases. Other reasons why TB is still a problem? Drug resistance. Drug resistance. Pardon?
1: Poor access to medicine.
0: Poor access to medicine, poor quality of medicine. And government um,
1: programs that do not work properly, that start people with inconsistent supplies, they, they treat with well. only one or two medicines instead of all four, minimum four, improperly run TV programs.
0: Exactly. So, so as um, Howard was just very well explaining programs that are not functioning properly or sometimes even governments that don't want to admit the tuberculosis of problem or people here in the United States will say, oh TB, thats we don't have that here in the United States. Yes, we do. Um, so maybe lack of public awareness, public health programs that are not supporting TB as a priority problem, who don't give enough money, or people whose salaries are not paid. I, my recent trip in Afghanistan talking with uh, TV staff some people have not been paid for months if not a year for a variety of other reasons within ministries of finance and ministries of public health very dedicated people I want to say people who are willing to work um, to control TV and um, within their country even though they aren't um, currently getting a salary so there are really um, many reasons. Also, one of the things is just the HIV epidemic. So people who are immunocompromised in some way are more likely to get tuberculosis. And of course, TB people who are also immunocompromised may become co-infected with TB. So there are so many factors. Um, We could spend a whole morning just talking about that. So what needs to be done to control TB, and just for the sake of giving you the World Health Organization perspective, which is a very sound Public Health Foundation, the idea is getting these cases identified early. So as long as they're not identified and they're coughing, they're creating more cases and more work for us. So getting communities educated, doing contact tracing, if there's somebody in the household who's been newly diagnosed um, getting that whole family to, to come in and talk with them about that. Minimizing factors associated with the delay in seeking medical care and getting everybody involved. It's not just about doctors. It is not just about doctors or even nurses. Um, one of my colleagues says that TB is a social disease, um, meaning in a sense that you know everybody can get it and everybody has a responsibility. So if there is somebody who has failed treatment and not stayed on treatment, In a sense, that burden falls on everyone's shoulder, not just, oh, the patient didn't adhere, the patient wasn't compliant. Somehow the education hasn't happened. It's a very important point, and I've put up here some things that I have from uh, other countries, and we can talk about that in in a little while. So engaging everybody else. And also improving infection control. Um, How many clinics have I gone to or you gone to where you've got a crowded waiting room they're mothers, and there are babies, and there are people coughing, and there are people who are, you know, barely able to come in—they're so thin or old or whatever. So, infection control um, is an important part of that. And then also, what we need are new tools for TB diagnostics, and I'll show you a timeline that gives you a sense of the history of that. So, TB diagnosis, treatment, and prevention—we certainly need tools for that if you're interested in the world health organization's global plan it's available on the who website and stop tv website this is just what it looks like it's a global plan between 2011 and 2015 um and how countries are rolling out you can look up specific country information if you're working in a particular place and want to say how is my country kind of stacking up you know is my country among the 22 high burden countries within the world this is this is where you'll find that information let's just talk about some basic clinical points i mentioned earlier infection versus disease i happen to be infected with tb probably like about a third of people here and certainly You know, I'm among the 2 billion people within the world. Obviously, I don't have disease. So what's the difference between the two? So (laughs) somebody who has latent TB infection, that's what LTBI is, their chest X-ray is normal. They They don't have a productive cough, and therefore their sputum smears and cultures are negative, and they don't require respiratory isolation. I'm not standing here wearing a mask and a microphone to talk with you about this disease. So they're not a TB case. They're when somebody's skin test uh, converts to positive and there are various measurements depending on circumstances, they may be placed on a preventive treatment called isoniazid prophylaxis or IPT. Now, people who have the disease are the ones who we need to get to who are infected and have an active case. Their chest X-ray may be abnormal. They may have... Findings, radiographic findings that could be suggestive of TB. Their sputum smears and cultures may be positive, and they're the people who need treatment because they're the ones who are continuing to to transmit. They may need respiratory (laughs) isolation as well. Those are the cases. So, just so you have a little sense of the difference between infection and disease.
1: What does the L stand
0: for? Latent. Latent, meaning that it could reactivate. Right, so if you have latent TB infection, but then you get malnourished, you have cancer, you have diabetes, you get older, your life stresses are such that, you know, your immune system is compromised, then it may reactivate, or it may activate and become an active case of TB. Yes, sir? Now with
1: latent, those of us who have been treated with isoniazid, mm-hmm. um, if, are we still considered latent or is that considered cured, or is it just does it just decrease
0: the chance that we're going to... Right. To it? it decreases your chances. Yeah. I mean, technically, you would still carry a diagnosis of latent TB infection because you still could. I think you have a 10% lifetime risk of that actually becoming an active case. Taking isoniazid preventive therapy quells that, but it doesn't remove it entirely. All right. Let's talk a little bit about... Oh, I see some hands up for questions. And I'm, yes, sir. I'll get to you, too. I teach some ocean
1: courses.
0: Um, I think it's best to use the WHO terminology, right, because some people know what you're talking about. There are certainly chronic cases that are actually active cases. They are potentially MDR cases, or there may be other issues going on where they're not getting a complete cure. So I wouldn't call a latent TB infection anything but a latent TB infection. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit... Oh, yes, sir, you had a question, too. Yeah, I'm just
1: interested. I've always heard... Percentage of um, people untreated late TB infections being 10 to 5%. I've never heard any statistics of, after treatment, a percentage of a chance of a patient getting...
0: You can still have TB, yeah. TB isn't just a one-time thing, oh, you've got lifetime immunity, I don't have to think about it again. It's still possible.
1: Because you can get reinfected or, or... You
0: can get reinfected with something new, and we can know that by DNA testing, DNA fingerprinting. We can know whether you've been reinfected, reactivated, or gotten something new. So, as I say, as long as you breathe, you know you're, you know, you could be susceptible. It's an intracellular
1: disease, and that's the reason why it's like cancer. It's intracellular. Right,
0: right, right. Yes, ma'am, you have a question. When you say infected, but not
1: having. Will
0: you show up on a skin test? It- yes, infected will have a positive skin test. Yeah, unless you are immunocompromised, in which case you may have energy and then you won't have a positive skin test, but you've, in fact, you've been infected. And there are other protocols to deal with that kind of thing. And that's why it depends on whether you're from a high burden country or a healthcare worker, et cetera, what they're considering a positive skin test 5, 10, 15 millimeters. Yes, ma'am. Yes, that's a good question about BCG. First of all, BCG is a very old vaccine. There are many different strains around the country, around the world. Um, they have done meta-analyses trying to figure out, you know, does BCG really work or not? You know, as a pediatrician, I think we have so many new vaccines. Why are we still dealing with this old, ancient BCG? But there is uh, some immunity afforded to newborns and young children who are given BCG. And the policy is that if if your BCG status is such that you've been immunized, you still read the skin test in the same way. So it's not like they're different Cutoff points for people who have had BCG vaccine and those who haven't. It's the same. BCG status is disregarded in reading the PPD. And also, there have been some countries that have done BCG boosters and school age, doesn't really afford any protection. The other thing about BCG, if I may add, is that it, pro- it protects against the extrapulmonary TB, so the TB meningitis, the bone TB, etc. But the pulmonary TB can still happen. So even if a kid has gotten adequately immunized with BCG as a newborn or infant, they can still have pulmonary TB.
1: It's easier to treat the pulmonary disease than the extra pulmonary disease,
0: Yeah, there, there are different categories for those treatments. Yeah, true. No, george
1: about the extra <coughs> later, but does the BCG interfere with the expert test
0: no, it doesn't. It doesn't. I love these questions because it lets me know you, your brains are on. <laughs> As a neurologist, having brains on is important to me. <laughs> okay. All right, let's talk a little bit about diagnostics. This is one of my colleagues from Afghanistan uh, who works in the laboratory and does sputum smear microscopy for his community. Let's look a little bit about the evolution of TB diagnostics. Well, back in 1882, Robert Koch identified the cause of TB. And this was also kind of, this led up to the development of the BCG vaccine, of which we've just spoken. Um, After, around that time, there was also development of microscopy, the microscope that you see here on this timeline, um, in the late 1800s, they started to work with radiography, so people could see what was happening in the chest. And maybe hard to see, perhaps you can see it. There's a cavity in the right upper lobe there in that radiograph. In 1907, the skin test, the tuberculin skin test, we're talking about over 100 years ago. That's why I'm passionate about (laughs) TB, getting this going. And in the 1930s, solid culture was used to identify TB. These are two tubes with the Lowenstein-Jensen solid culture media. So if you ever visit a TB lab and you see these kind of green tubes, that's TB culture medium. Media, and there are TB colonies that are actually growing on that, may be difficult to see there. In 1950, the first anti TB drugs were discovered. 1950. So think about all the people who lived and died before that era who had no access to TB drugs, including my own grandfather, who died in the 1930s of TB, and his treatment was sanatorium, sunshine. He was Brazilian, so he got a lot of sunshine and nutrition and rest, et cetera. And then in the 1980s, short-course chemotherapy and liquid culture were developed, and then... um in the late 1990s, uh, the discovery of HIV as another factor complicating TB, multi-drug resistant TB was known then. And then, in the last few years, there have been different microscopy techniques, light-emitting diode and fluorescent microscopy, as well as line probe assay, which is DNA testing. And we've gotten better microscopes, etc. So. I don't want to spend a lot of time on TB diagnosis, but I just want to mention that the first thing is just identifying people who have symptoms. Cough more than three weeks, fever, weight loss, night sweats, et cetera, may be a clue to that. Obviously a specimen has to be collected, a sputum specimen, if we're talking pulmonary TB, needs to be looked at under a microscope, possibly cultured in a laboratory, if the, the, culture ha- if the country has that capacity. In some instances, chest X-ray, but we're now moving to molecular techniques of which we'll talk about uh, Gene Expert as we go on. But there are lots of limitations. I think the reality is that most countries are still doing light microscopy, sputum smear microscopy, but sensitivities are, are not great. You can miss cases. Um, it's terrible to have a false negative, someone who should have been diagnosed who wasn't. They may not have very many bacilli if they're HIV positive or maybe they they haven't developed cavitary disease. Um, And culture can also be done, but it takes sometimes two or three months for solid culture results. So in all that time, you're waiting for a diagnosis and if there were diagnostic delays if somebody lived out in a remote area or a healthcare worker wasn't very attuned or a community hadn't been educated, the add on to the delays. So the fluorescent microscopy FM will allow processing of a lot more slides. It's kind of a volume um, approach. And light emitting diodes are also um, more helpful but they're more expensive. Line probe assay, DNA, all the kind of DNA PCR techniques require biosafety labs and most countries outside of the capital city will not have that. And then chest X-ray, I mean, you look at a chest X-ray, it's a point in time. Is that old TB? Is that new TB? Is there something else going on? You know, it's not as sensitive or specific. And, of course, the TB skin test can't distinguish between infection and active disease. Yes?
1: Yes, we tried to introduce the fluorescent microscopy. We found it's impossible in isolated areas that lack refrigeration. The chemicals are very sensitive. It will not work in a developing country unless you have something we have, dependable electrical source.
0: And right. So it's high-tech. It is high-tech.
1: The equipment tech. isn't, but the chemicals
0: are. Right. It really belongs in reference laboratories, either national reference laboratories or regional reference laboratories. But if you have a chance to go to a country's laboratory, ask. You know, are they using solid or liquid? Are they using fluorescent or LED? You know, get educated. Every time I go to a lab, I'm trying to learn something new because I'm not a lab specialist. Did somebody else have a question here. Yes ma'am. I have a question. Um how do you how have you been dealing
1: with uh, let's say a child of a um, uh, positive T V mother who is exemplifying um T V um, if the child has T V? Yeah, well it looks like T V with all the symptoms but a negative sputum. and how does the how does that work? Um
0: yeah, that's child TV is a very good question. We could actually spend all of this session just on child TV, and maybe there will be another occasion as a part of a seminar, and I'm glad to talk with you offline about that. If children are household contacts under five, they're placed on prophylaxis if they're asymptomatic. But if they seem to be symptomatic, they deserve the treatment just as any adult would. right? It's harder to get sputum from kids. We'll talk a moment about gastric aspirates, but... Those are the
1: also, also the uh, government regulations um, in that aspect of not having a positive smear and yet still
0: Right. In fact this Sunday, I'm, because of this I'm I'm not going to be there, but this Sunday there is an international conference just on child TV in Malaysia which will be looking at the roadmap to TV, you know, what needs to be done to get child T V on the agenda. Because sometimes child T V is what I call a neglected tropical disease. All right, Um, just a quick review for people who um, are not into the TB world. Um, You need to have at least, you need to have three sputum specimens examined by acid fast um, bacilli and and ideally culture techniques. Three specimens best collected early in the morning on consecutive days. There are new guidelines that allow for two specimens if the first one is clearly positive. But think about it. You know, you are living far from a health center. Can you imagine trying to hang out for two or three days just to cough up a sample? Um, That sometimes doesn't happen. And so either sometimes people are immediately put on treatment once they have, you know, three, four-plus crosses on the lab register. They need to have uh, TB treatment started. Um, Or... They, if the lab isn't working, if they don't have the reagents, the microscope objectives have been broken, the lab technician is off having a baby, and there wasn't a, a backfill, a person may just be syndromically treated. You know, cough for three weeks, weight loss, fever, high burden country, et cetera. They may just put them on TB drugs. It's not ideal, but we live in a real world. Yeah, and also um, the issue is getting the specimens in a way that doesn't contaminate other people. So places that I go, I always say, where do you get the sputum collections? And they'll trot me over to what they call the sputorium, (laughs) which (laughs) is is very, I have a set of photographs of, you know, the various sputoria of the world. You know, some of them are very nice, that's a little... Bench. They put flowers and bushes around them. It has a little roof to protect the person from sun or rain, and they can privately <laughs> generate their sputum. There, in Afghanistan, I've seen male and female sputoria, and there are a variety of settings. Or sometimes it's just, you know, out in the back behind the lab, you know, where all the biomedical waste has been thrown. The person is also, and then they hand their cup through a little window into the lab, and then hopefully the lab worker has some biosafety so that he or she doesn't become infected by the specimen that they're collecting and examining. Gastric aspirate is used in children. It's not all that successful. You know, it's hard to get children to cough up something. Sometimes there will be attempts to induce with saline, which is you know, requires nebulization and a mask and this and that. It's another issue. issue. But sometimes gastric aspiration is essentially putting a little tube, NG tube down, and um, aspirating fluid because the thought is children have coughed a little bit and then swallowed, and that's where the sputum sputum is to be found. The... uh, Bacilli are called acid-fast bacilli. AFB is the term that you'll sometimes see. Um, I know when I was in medical school, we called them red snappers because they are red. It's not uh, not as well projected on this slide, but they are red. It's always fun to go to a lab and say, "Show me your best slides," because then I get a sense of are they, you know, calling the dust that has picked up the acid uh, staining as TB bacilli, or have they really diagnosed well. It's kind of a quick quality assurance test. Um, Ideally, sputum results should be available in 24 hours, but sometimes labs will collect a bunch before they run them. Um, You know, they may not do them all on the same day. They don't want to be, you know, doing one slide at a time or two slides at a time, so sometimes they'll batch them. Right. Yes. I
1: have not had anybody answer this question. How long... Is the sample taken? up? What's the maximum time that should be allowed before it is is, is no longer a viable sample?
0: Right, that's a great, very practical question. And how long is this specimen good for? You know, do, do the bacilli just kind of conk out and the lab wouldn't detect them? I've heard that up to a week, and it's important to know that. I think you have to see there are many factors, but you know, sometimes you'll have a sputum collection center in the periphery and microscopy centers closer to the the town, which is good, so that people can provide their sputa at one place someone is trained to collect them and then get them by motorbike or bicycle, whatever, to a microscopy center. Ideally, you want that within 24 hours or so, but I've heard that up to a week it may be possible. And again, that's the reality. If it's rainy season, the motorcyclist Uh, He's using his bike for something else or there isn't petrol to, you know, get the thing going. Anyway, let's talk a little bit, just a little bit about culture techniques. This is um, one of my heroes. He's the director of the National TV Reference Laboratory in Dhaka, Bangladesh. And um, I love going there. He's so full of enthusiasm. He loves to teach. He's always interested in um, new technologies. And earlier this year when I visited him, he had GeneXpert. So he was glowing. Um, because here he has all these uh, solid culture tubes because they also do solid and they do some, they do some liquid culture. But getting Gene expert will make a big difference for him in terms of uh, rapid diagnostics. I'm just going to skip this slide here because we've talked about this, and we'll we'll also. I just want to say, for the sake of time, just move on to talk about the molecular diagnosis. Something called GeneExpert. It was developed by a partnership of three groups, and you can get online and get all the information as to how it was developed and who developed it. But the basic, um, the take-home message about GeneExpert is that it's fully all automated. And it needs to be, at some point, decentralized because it's easy to use. Now, there are other parts, other footnotes to that, but it simultaneously detects TB and drug resistance, and you can get the results in two hours, and you don't need to be a super tech in order to run expert. So, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Oh, I meant to ask you this, but for the sake of time, I'll just say, why are we even bothering to treat TB? It's not only for individual cure of that patient, but also minimizing death and disability and interrupting the transmission to others. So there's a medical reason, the individual patient, and then there's a public health reason preventing transmission to other people in the community. TB treatment regimens are changing. Um, A few years ago, I wrote a rap song about TB because I thought that might be a good way to get some messages out about TB. And the refrain in the song was the treatment course, which was four drugs for two months and then two drugs for four months. That is still the regimen in most countries, four drugs for two months, then two drugs for four months. But that's changing as we're starting to look at new drugs and and, um, new new treatment regimens. So why do we monitor TB treatment? I think I did put this in as an audience question. So why are we monitoring TB? What's the the reason for tracking that? Pardon? Pardon? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, who hasn't been on an antibiotic? The doctor said, take this three times a day for 10 days. And really, by day five or day seven, you're saying, feeling better, you know, I'll just save these drugs for another occasion. Yeah, so people don't necessarily adhere. Prevent,
1: prevent, Prevent the development of resistance.
0: Preventing the development of resistance, monitoring for adherence, making sure that. You know, what I call, what other people call a treatment buddy. You know, somebody who's coming alongside, you know, an accompagnateur or whatever language you use. Um, Somebody coming along and saying, hey, you know, did you take your meds this morning? Are you having trouble? Um, Are you having side effects from it? You know, just kind of because life gets busy. You know, you're a mother. You've got lots of kids running around. You have to till the fields. Um, get the water, prepare the meals, get kids sent off to school. It's possible to forget. So having somebody come along and be the, the reminder or encourager, et cetera. I think somebody else had their hand up or maybe we've spoken to those issues. So okay, so we're monitoring for adherence, we're monitoring for drug uh, reactions. And then also we monitor because at t- after two months of treatment, after those four drugs for two months, there should be another sputum sample collected to see, are those red snappers still snapping or have they gone away? If they've gone away, then that person can go from the four drugs to the two drugs and continue. If not, they may have drug-resistant TB or there may be other things going on. There are protocols about that of which we will not speak. All right. So here we go. All right. TB drug discovery. I just want to give you a little timeline. Yes, sir? How long
1: till symptoms go away?
0: Actually, symptoms go away within about three, two or three weeks. People start feeling better, and that's when people tend to drop off the treatment. So that you know, dot, daily observed treatment, is really critical. And that's why this is not a disease that you just say, here's a month of your medication, I'll see you you know, next month. You really need somebody to um, encourage them to stay on treatment. Yes, sir?
1: What do you do with the uh, minor... Uh,
0: LFTs yeah.
1: About I, I just recently seen a case of INH toxicity. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, people can get hepatotoxicity, hepatitis, chemical hepatitis from some of the drugs. Yeah. Um, it's an individual sort of thing. I'll tell you that I generally don't see LFTs being checked in most patients. If they're on second line drugs for multi drug resistant TB, people are more careful about following that. And sometimes people get ke- chemical hepatitis and they do need to be taken off the drug or put it on something else. They're on rifampicin, maybe they need to be on rifabutin, those kinds of things. But that's why you need a treatment observer. Somebody say, hey, you know, you're looking a little yellow today. <laughs> 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 you know, you seem under the weather, those kinds of things. Or, you know, maybe somebody is complaining about neuropathies or gastritis. Yeah. But those, how those are rather low incidence. They are low incidence. Yeah, 1% or less. Yeah, it's small, but it's important to keep in mind the individual patient, too. It's
1: not too.
0: necessarily low if the person also has hepatitis or right. is a, drinker, oh, is a lot. Those is are the realities. And, in yeah. fact, in Brazil, where I just was recently, many of these difficult-to-treat-and-monitor patients are people who live on the streets, um, who are drug users, who are very marginalized, populations. Yeah, I mean, there are many, many reasons. So they have so many other comorbidities. It's more likely that their liver's already trying to metabolize the alcohol or the drugs, and now you put on a TB regimen with four drugs <laughs> for two months. Not easy, yeah. I think somebody else had a question or comment.
1: Exactly.
0: Exactly. We do a
1: lot of
0: Yeah, in fact, I mean, they're a captive audience, so to speak. People in prisons, yeah, they have higher, much higher incidences of TB and HIV and TB-HIV together. They are there. There's a flip side to the prison thing. On the one hand, they have higher uh, TB and HIV incidences and comorbidities. Um, On the other hand, they are populations that you can check on every day. And I heard recently in Brazil, and I had heard this a, a number of years ago too, that there were some people, prisoners, who then, once they completed their treatment, they became the treatment buddy for the guy in the next cell or whatever. It was lovely. In fact, just this, a couple of weeks ago...
1: Don't want to get the disease.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, they don't want to get the disease. There's a whole story about prisons that's kind of interesting. But what I thought was really redemptive is this patient who had TB and who was cured said, you know, I thought my life was just worthless. But when I was treated with TB and cured, I realized maybe God had a purpose in my life, and my life now was to help other people get back to health. And it was really inspiring to hear that story from him. He saw that. Now, there was also somebody in that same prison who said, hmm, I'd like to have TB because I'll get better food, I'll get my own cell, I'll be treated more And people do sell their sputum. Um, I had done some work with uh, TB people in the Republic of Georgia, and they said that they had to have a whole different method. Their sputoria (laughs) had to be very monitored because people were... Selling their sputum, or saying, you know, if you'll give me two cigarettes, I'll give you my sputum, and that kind of thing. So, and the prisoners had techniques of drying their sputum and saving it, and then doling it out to people who wanted it. So, prisons are a very interesting place to work. Anyway, back to TV drugs. <laughs> back to TV drugs here. So, here you see on this timeline, streptomycin um, in 1943. And you see isoniazid and pyrazinamide, and then some second lines, cycloserine in 1955, canamycin in 57, ethambutol in 61, capriomycin, and then um, rifampicin in 1963. But what's important are not the dates. What's important in this slide is this huge gap of almost 50 years between the last, between the current time and the last TB drug. Now, there are TB drugs on the pipeline. The slide is just could be updated a bit on the timeline. But that's the problem, especially when you look at what's happened with antiretrovirals for HIV. Oh my goodness. Look, 1987 to, 19, uh, to 2008, 30 FDA approved antiretroviral drugs. So if you're looking for a career path, Um, there may be a lot of work to be done in TB drug Uh, development, just putting life in perspective here. (laughs) Um, But the reality about drugs is that sometimes drugs, they may be in the capital, they may be in the warehouse at the port, and somebody wants a little payment to get them released from the warehouse, or simply they can't get them from the warehouse to the provinces because like in Angola, the roads were mined, so nobody was going to be riding over those roads. It hadn't been demined. Or the weather was so bad, or the roads were not good, or there wasn't a vehicle. Many reasons. Um, I was in Libya at the end of last year, and not doing TV work, but doing other kinds of health system strengthening. And I remember visiting a very nice, well-run clinic, and I asked to see you know, their drugstore room, And this is what they showed me, very neatly organized, on shelves, off the floor, but not much in the way of medicines for the patient population that they served in downtown Tripoli. And another clinic in the periphery had maybe a plethora of drugs, but they didn't have somebody to organize. And sometimes that's what's needed, is not... Not a pharmacist as much, well, they need pharmacists, of course, but maybe somebody who has a sense of organization, who, knows, who is able to look at day, uh, expiry dates, making sure that they're not giving drugs that have um, deteriorated in some way, etc., and just to be organized. You can imagine that there may be something on these shelves that somebody needs, but they can't find it. So, all right, community-based dot. I have such respect and admiration for the people who are really in the weeds, who are doing the work. Many of them are volunteers. So community health workers such as this woman in Bangladesh, very proudly showing me her her satchel with TB meds and other things. Um, People in Liberia who are working to get the message out. This is a community health worker on the right handing a TB referral card to the woman on the left. And here's a little picture of the card. I thought this was so good. It was a laminated card, and if somebody were a TB suspect, not a case, but just a suspect, they were saying, here's the card. You can get to the head of the line. You don't have to sit in the clinic, so that was good infection control. That was potentially earlier diagnosis. And, you know, just go straight Straight to the clinic, flash your card, and, you know, head of the class kind of thing. That was a great idea. And people felt special as opposed to the stigma of possibly having TB. Quite effective. Also, um, why not bring in the informal private sector? This happens to be a drug seller who's got plenty of organized drugs in his little... um, setting in the marketplace who's talking with one of the TB patients and telling her, please stay on treatment. It's important for you, for your family, for your community. Patient education is a critical part. As I mentioned earlier, I brought if people want to linger. Here's a something that I just picked up in Brazil about uh, TV treatment uh, and education. And it has information for patients here. And then on the other side of the table, it has sort of the cliff notes, (laughs) the cheat sheets, so to speak, of things that need to be said for that patient. And, um, I mean, these are sort of luxuries. This happens to be a little book, again, written in Portuguese. It's the story of Samson. Now, you know in the Bible, when Samson's hair got cut off, he lost all his strength. Well, this Brazilian Samson lost his strength because he had TB. And so it's a very engaging story with somewhat of a, a biblical parallel in that sense about this uh, man who had TB and how his family were concerned, and his, even his dog was afraid of him. And in the end of the story, the dog comes back to play. So these are just also... It's it's fun to have uh, creative ways of getting messages out. In in Afghanistan, where I was last month, I found this poster, which I've never never, ever seen a poster like this. And it's the message. I've never seen this message. It says, I am the guard at the Herat TB clinic. Herat is a western city in Afghanistan near the border of Iran. And he says... Ask me about how many TB patients I have seen go home smiling. We are ready to help. And I actually met this guard. We were circulating around the clinic, and I said, oh, that looks like the man on the poster, and sure enough it was. And I thought this was such a good idea, because this guy isn't a doctor, a nurse, a pharmacist, etc. He's just the guard at the clinic. But it's a very positive message about TB. And then I have... Um, for anybody who reads, I guess, Dari and Pushdu, I have, this is from, officially from the Ministry of Health in Afghanistan, which um, points out actually the gender issue in, of TV and women in that country and explains the various things that need to be done. It's largely meant for healthcare workers. I, I think they could use it as a, a health education tool, but it's mainly for them to keep in mind what they need to do. Just want to watch our time because I think we are really coming. We've had so many good questions. Afghan treatment supporters, supervision of, supervision of DOT. I'm actually going to skip the TD hiv or just run through it quickly to respect the time. You can see that there are a number of places, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, that have high burdens of co-infection. There are uh, countries that are increasing in their HIV testing for TB patients. Very important to test Actually, 100%, that's a goal, of TB patients for HIV. And also to see that they're put on cotrimoxazole preventive therapy as well as their antiretroviral treatment. And, again, data, this will all be posted um, for you afterwards. Let's just look a little bit at MDR-TB. It's around the world. Uh, The high-burden countries... Many of them do not have sufficient capacity to diagnose TB, and so that's why Gene Expert, one of the many reasons why GeneXpert has come around. And as I mentioned, um, I'm going to skip this here. It's a very simple test. It has a little sample. You have a sample reagent that you have to um, incubate for 15 minutes at room temperature, pipet the diluted sample into the cartridge, which is the middle one, and slip the cartridge in. So it's really very physically easy to do. We're coming, we're coming to that. And you can see that it has much better sensitivity and specificity than other tests and has really quite a high sensitivity and specificity for rifampicin resistance. There's a lot of literature on this. The median time to detection is cut down tremendously. Solid culture may take a month, liquid culture, two weeks, smear microscopy, a day, but gene expert, really within 90 minutes, you can have the result. Is there or is there not TB, and is there rifampicin resistance? <coughs> so, and you can see that um, it's just a tremendous test to use. The data show that about, it takes about two months for people who are smear negative culture positive to be known that they are in fact uh, TB patients, TB uh, infected with TB. And um, the median time to treatment was reduced to five days. There are, there's a lot of discussion about who to treat. Most people, most places are trying to get the harder cases to be uh, tested by gene expert. So people who are living with HIV, who um, may have be at high risk for MDR-TB, sputum smear negatives who are symptomatic, are other individuals to consider testing, and so on. The budget, because somebody asked and because my time is coming to a close, it's now down to about $60,000, which seems like a lot of money, and it is. Although the cost of the cartridges are coming down, but they're single-use cartridges, and there's also the issue of biomedical waste, what do you do with all these things, and the pipettes, and so on. Um, the place to look for experience about Gene Expert is in South Africa. And they are diagnosing 30% more patients uh, with s- drug-sensitive, 76 more patients with uh, drug-resistant TB, more are initiated on treatment. They're also doing fewer cultures because it's, you know, you've got the results there in about two hours, and that means less burden on the laboratory. I want to respect the time. Um, I'm glad to talk with people a little bit, but I have another talk to give right after this. These are key documents and websites I would encourage you to see. And would like to thank you so much for coming. I hope you've learned something about TB. I'm here. I'm glad to talk with you individually. I'd love to learn from you too. So thank you very much. Can
1: you put back the websites? We don't have the idea out, right?
0: Yeah, the organizers of this said they were going to have people post their presentations. Right, because I realize handouts are not an issue. I mean, are not something that have been provided. I can put that up there quickly. Well, that's okay. They're
1: going to be posted on the website. That's
0: what they. That's what they promised. Um, I'll let me just point you quickly to those. Let's see if I can get down there.
1: <coughs>
0: there you go.